Well, hello everybody and welcome to episode 25 of Yes OBS. I am Anthony Edmondson, voiceover Tony, with my very good friend... Paul Anthony Jones. Yeah, who is also known as Mr. Haggard Hawks. Yeah. The quarter century, we've reached number 25. I know, it's only taken us about four or five years or something. I think it's taken us a quarter of a century. (laughs) (laughs) At this rate, we'll reach episode 100. In about a hundred years, <laughs> in our dotage. You know, I'm not. I'm not feeling very confident about today's episode. Oh, you know, fair, right, switch off now, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like I've, I compare. I'm kind of comparing it to last week when I had an absolute disaster. I can't remember last week's. Well, you might remember I mistook Bristol for being in Devon. <laughs> I, that was it. And I was so desperate for a theme. My last fact was sellotaped together. Oh, yes. <laughs> a bit vaguely, of... I, th- I sort of shelved it in the recesses of my brain because I, didn- I didn't want to revisit it ever again. I lie awake at night thinking about how terrible my facts are sometimes. <laughs> you obviously just have no input into this podcast. I'm just always confident about everything I do. <laughs> <laughs> of course you are, Paul. Just go blindly through life. Just... <laughs> That's it. Ignorance is Ignorance, better. It's absolutely. not confidence. It's blind ignorance. Absolutely. Yeah. Speaking of which, I was waiting for four days for you to reply to a text this week. What? I, you know, was this, these, Confidence these or happens. ignorance? Well, no, it was a WhatsApp. Oh, so I, I finally logged into it and I had about 4,500 unread messages from, <laughs> from you and all our mates. Like, were, I can't be bothered to go through all of that. They were all from me. <laughs> 45 messages, when are you doing the podcast? When are you doing the podcast? Just sent every hour until yeah. you answered. No, pretty much. But as I said, I'm not massively confident. Yes, right. So what's, what subject you got planned here? Roman history? No, I told you. I keep telling you I'm not doing Roman history I'm just season. waiting for it to come back up. It might eventually. We don't know. I'm doing Asian history oh, today. Right, okay. <laughs> what? Uh, Japan or China? No, actually, it's neither of those. Oh, okay. Uh, I've also got some kind of interesting scientific theory facts. Science, really? Um... No wonder you're not confident. <laughs> well, I haven't got the best back catalogue of science facts. And I'll not give any spoilers, but this is why I'm not confident, because my last fact, I've kind of literally built it around a joke that I came up with. So... <sighs> it's been, you work. know, it's been a while since you shoehorned a joke. It's going to work. It's going to work. Right. Is the joke at my expense? They it usually It certainly are. is. Right, okay. A, of course it's at your expense, Paul. <laughs> That's why I wrote it. Right. Okay. So, so let me re- mentally prepare for that one. Well, you're ready to kick off okay. with fact number one. Right. So as I said, we're doing Asian history today mm. and we're going to Tibet. <laughs> Which is technically now in China. <laughs> I knew it was going to be either Chinese or Japanese history. Excuse me. <laughs> free Tibet. Well, yes, that's, not, that's a separate podcast. <laughs> Let's and not the, get into the geopolitical and, arguments about Tibet. And in the period we're in, Tibet is an independent state. Oh, okay. So, well, what era are you talking about? Uh, we're talking the seventh to the ninth century. <laughs> well, it was an independent nation like two hundred years ago or something, wasn't it? It could have been any point in history. <laughs> See, this is why it's not going well. The 7th to 9th century in Tibet. Right, okay. And there's no preamble to this fact. I'm just launching straight into this. Okay. From start to finish, is this yes or BS? Okay. So what would you say if I was to tell you that Tibet 
used to be an imperial power. So there used to be a Tibetan Empire. There was a Tibetan Empire. Sounds plausible. Am I kind of going in with a bit, oh, this is very believable. Would he really do this? Or is it... What, is that, is that the fact? <laughs> 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 what I would probably say is that's not a very I'm interesting fact. I'm going to go into more details. Right, okay. So I'm going to... Have I... So... Basically, have I made up all these facts about the Tibetan Empire? Right. Or is this completely true? Okay, okay. So at its height, between the 7th and 9th centuries, mm-hmm. the Tibetan Empire covered all of Tibet, obviously. Um, really? All of modern-day Bangladesh, uh, Assam in northeast India, Bhutan, Nepal, and almost a massive chunk of western China. Oh, right, So okay. it was quite powerful at its height. The Tibetan army actually occupied Xi'an at one point, which was the capital of the Chinese Empire at the time as well. All right, okay. So this was a time when Tibet was kind of taking the fight back to the Chinese. Right. And there's a Chinese historian called Do Yu. And it was from this Chinese historian that we got quite a few insights onto the Tibetan Empire. Right. For instance, on the Tibetan army, he said the men and horses all wear chainmail armor. Its workmanship is extremely fine, and it envelops them completely, leaving openings only for two eyes. But the horse is covered yes, in that much chainmail. The horse and the rider and the soldiers are all completely covered in chainmail, apart from eye slits. All oh, right, okay. So, so they sort of all look like a huge beaded cloche. <laughs> they do. A giant beaded cloche advancing towards you. Okay. But he said that their archery wasn't very good. But um, he also said that the Tibetan armies never carried any provisions, but they plundered all the grain and livestock that they needed when they were on the road. So they were kind of designed as a kind of big hit-and-run style army. They'd go in, take the territory they needed, get all the supplies they wanted. Sort of smash and grab Smash and grab sort of army. I suppose coming coming from a mountainous region like Tibet, that makes more sense because there's not a lot of area for farmland up there or mm. kind of grazing livestock. So do you want to know about some life at home for the Tibetan Empire? Okay. They didn't grow any rice but they had black oats, red pulses, barley and buckwheat which they're staples. Mm. Um, they used to eat yaks, pigs, um, dogs, sheep and horses as well. That's quite a mix. But the most exciting fact on the on the home front was that they used to wear a lot of furs made out of flying squirrels. <laughs> Now, these these squirrels still exist today. Mm-hmm. They're known as the woolly flying squirrel. Mm-hmm. They're kind of, you can still find them in northern India. Mm-hmm. And they're about 60 centimetres long or about 70 to 24 inches from kind of head head to tail. Mm-hmm. So you get you, you get a little bit of fur out of them. I'm, I'm guessing you have to kill quite a lot of these these little flying squirrels to mm-hmm. get it get like a full suit made out of it I suppose were they wearing it in the hope that they would fly themselves <laughs> they could be maybe they thought we'll use some of the powers of the skins and off we'll go mm. I'm waiting for like and they all had hands made out of scones I was like <laughs> so, something really weird no there's nothing of the sort okay today uh, my final fact on the Tibetan Empire is there is actually a pillar in Lhasa today that's been blocked off by the Chinese government that documented the Tibetan conquest of Western China. So oh, right, the okay. Chinese so government hasn't destroyed it, mm-hmm. but it's kind of blocked off so no one can see it. So they don't want anyone to know that Tibet once invaded China mm. and kind of went on the rampage. Right, okay. And that, Paul, is the... And that's it. Yes. There's, there's nothing sort of too yes or bs about that. That's mm. just a sort of list of things that probably would have happened about that long ago. Which is why I've chosen this. 
a Tibetan Empire. Yes, I suppose that's plausible. All, sort of old nations and things at one time or another did have kind of imperialist kind of interests, I suppose. So, yeah, I don't see why Tibet would be any different. Now, the thing is that I remember that Tibet is a very peaceful nation now. And is that because it's chiefly a Buddhist region? Yes. So at, at what point did that sort of transformation, like from this, grand imperial power to uh, I thought, calm Buddhist nation? I thought you might have this question, Paul. All right. so, so you've I've, concocted I've, an answer. <laughs> you've weaved in <laughs> my answer. Because at the end of the ninth century was when Buddhism started to really take hold in Tibet. Before right. that, there was something called the Bon religion. And um, Buddhism borrowed quite a few bits and pieces from Bon, mm -hmm. but the Bon religion is much more focused on it's kind of it's focused on like ancestor worship, uh, worship of nature. It has various gods and spirits, and they actually had right. a used to have a god of war. That was only one of the reasons the Tibetan Empire collapsed. There was it was very difficult to maintain a structure when you're on both sides of the Himalayas. And it's kind of if you've got trouble, uh, yeah. if you've got trouble on one side, it's difficult to get over and sort it. By the time you've got back, mm. there's been trouble on the other side after that. Mm -hmm. And there was various rebellions in the ninth century. Mm. And with the takeover of Buddhism, it kind of they never reignited their imperial ambitions. Right. Okay, that all sounds very plausible. Hmm. Right. Okay. So it used to be a sort of grand imperial power. The geography of the region kind of prevented it from really firmly establishing it mm. itself. And by the time that all sort of petered out, petered out, it became a Buddhist nation anyway. Yes. Okay. This all sounds plausible. The thing about the meeting yaks and things, that all sounds <laughs> plausible. The flying squirrels furs. Mm. I don't know if you get flying squirrels in India. I'm guessing that you do. Yeah, that sounds plausible. Like I say, there's nothing... The the horse covered head to foot in chainmail is a little unusual. That would look like a sort of colander was walking towards you. <laughs> Again, like, that history is very strange. There's nothing kind of, you know, there's no Colombians eating banknotes level <laughs> crazy this here. This may be the most level-headed fact. This is just I'm... like a fact. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like a history lesson. There's nothing to kind of make you sit up and go, wow, this is weird. So yeah, on that basis alone I, I could completely see you going right I want to write about Tibet but I also want to win the game so I'm going to write something very bland and very just sort of staid and normal to mm. to kind of make it sound plausible I could see you doing that but also at the same point there's nothing there that makes me think that this is madness mm. so yeah I think this is probably true I reckon there probably was at some point a Tibetan empire final answer yeah true this entire fact is true. Ah, that's well interesting. Done, yeah, you would kind of think of it today, like I was saying, as a very sort of peaceful kind of mm. keeps itself to itself kind of nation. Mm. So that is interesting that it used to have a much more kind of imperialist history. I was trying to double bluff you there. Yeah, like, that's what I was worried <laughs> about. Like, I can imagine you, like I say, I can imagine you going, right, I want to write about Tibet <laughs> and not finding that kind of yes or BS kind of fact. <laughs> so just coming out with like a string of reasonable, normal facts. You know, I would actually, how would this be for you? Because I was originally going to turn this into a lie. I was mm. going to make like the Tibetan Empire would be true. Mm -hmm. But then I was going to kind of make up some sort of Tibetan naval expedition to West Africa. That famously uh, maritime nation of Tibet. <laughs> well, because, because, <laughs> They'd had they had Bangladesh as part of the empire. Oh right, okay. So yeah. they would have had access to the coast. Uh, that would have been interesting. Yeah, I would probably have gone with that. Ah, because that would just... that would make sense that they would use a, a conduit to the coast if mm. they had one. Right. Note to self: 
stick to my guns next time. (laughs) (laughs) Right. That was quite an interesting fact to start off with, even though it was sort of, there wasn't that burning guess of the yes in the middle of it. Um, So uh, I'm going to start with a little quiz this time again for you. We've done one of these before. Do I get bonus points? Oh, go on then. Ah. If you get this right, I'll be seriously impressed. Okay. That means that I don't think you're going to get it right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. What do these people have in common? Mm-hmm. Okay. Marco Polo, mm-hmm. the uh, former UK ambassador to America under Edward VII and George V. <laughs> Viscount Bryce. <laughs> I'm sure you know him really well. Uh, Apollo 15 astronaut James Irwin and Sir Nicholas II. I don't even know where to start. (laughs) Possibly the four most varied people. (laughs) They all liked (laughs) travelling. You know, there is a slight England there. Ambassador to America, that's travelling. Marco Polo went to China. The other fellow went to space. There you go. I think I should get a bonus point for this. Absolutely does. They all visited, supposedly, Noah's Ark. Really? Yeah. Um, in I, I'm not going to go into all the details about all four of their expeditions, uh, but the Tsar Nicholas II one is kind of disputed about whether he arranged this sort of Russian attempt to, to go and find the Ark. Mm. Um, but the kind of rumour is that in uh, sometime between 1916 and 1919, which is a bit of a troublesome era for the old uh, the old Tsars of Russia. Well, considering he, he was dead yeah, in exactly. 1917. <laughs> well, he, he'd arranged this, so whether it was carried out in his name after the revolution. Mm-hmm. Um, but the rumour is that Soviets uh, travelled to the mountains to try and find the Ark, brought back proof, gave it to Trotsky, who then right, destroyed right. the evidence. So they thought, oh, you know what? Tsar, that Tsar wasn't all bad. He had a good idea to go and find the Ark. <laughs> <laughs> These known for being atheistic communists. Yeah. Sorry, I'm questioning too early. Yeah, um, that's probably it. These are all true, but that that story is probably disputed. Mm. Yeah, th- there is a rumor that he arranged a sort of expedition to find the ark. So before we get into this kind of gist of all of this, some facts about Noah's ark. How old was Noah when it was built? Oh, it's one of these things. The early Bible stories they're always older than you think, because like Abraham was like 92 or something. Yeah. When he left home, mm-hmm. um, but like yourself, Paul, really. <laughs> uh, he would have been in his hundreds, I think. <laughs> yeah, he was six hundred years old. <laughs> um, a bonus fact: What was the name of Noah's wife? Ooh, Geraldine. She's never named. <gasps> no, uh, one of the few sort of major biblical characters that's never going to name. You, pull, you can't be pulling these sneaky t- tricks on me oh, like this. Oh, hey, there you are. Um, yeah, in terms of a sort of modern shipbuilding size, the ark was three hundred cubits long and thirty cubits uh, by thirty cubits, which would make it how big compared to the Titanic? Do you reckon? Well, not knowing how to measure cubits or naval vessels <laughs> on any on any level, I could only guess um, forty five times bigger, <laughs> a third the size. <laughs> and the Titanic, even by modern standards, isn't particularly big. So um, yeah, apparently you could fit two of every creature in, in the world on it. A ship something a third the size of the Titanic. Uh, now the flood myth, um, which we kind of all know as the sort of story of Noah. Uh, here's another little guessing game for you. How many other cultures around the world do you reckon have got some kind of version of the flood story? Well, it's quite a lot, isn't it? Like, isn't it found in like um, the Americas as well mm-hmm. and yeah. in Asia? 
Yeah. And in the Middle well, Middle East is obviously the newer one. And the uh, Australian Aborigines have mm. their version of it as well, yeah. I'm sure I was watching a documentary somewhere that there was some kind of flooding event mm. uh, or rising of sea levels that might have yeah. kind of been the... Yeah, the, the catalyst. Gen- the, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, it's recorded in somewhere between two to 300 different cultures really? around the world. Yeah, mm. The usual number is about 270, but there's estimates kind of either side of it. Um, but yeah, you're right that there's kind of, there must have been maybe some event in history that people have interpreted in this way mm. for it to be kind of that widespread across the, across the world. Um, yeah, now here's a little bit of uh, kind of Bible trivia for you. Mm. Can you remember the name of the mountain that it's supposed to have landed on? Oh... This is proper pub quiz knowledge. Oh, no. You will know it. It's Ararat. Ah! Yeah. That's... Now, the thing is, if it is pub quiz knowledge, people say that it landed on Mount Ararat. Mm. But in the Bible, it just calls it the mountains of Ararat. Mm. Um, and no one really knows where that actually corresponds to. There is a Mount Ararat today in Turkey. But the historically, the name Ararat was kind of like, it was a sort of regional name. So that you could interpret it as... Um, basically, it would all apply to kind of any region from Turkey right the way across to Afghanistan. There's all Jeez, sorts God. of different claims Be for more where this. Specific ancient people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's all sorts of claims for where this actually could be. So, although people think that it's in uh, that it is on this Mount Ararat in Turkey, people have claimed that it's in, like I say, Afghanistan, Armenia, Iran, Azerbaijan, all over Turkey, kind of all over the sort of central kind of belt of the Mm. Caucasus, kind of that whole sort of area. Yeah, although it's Mount Ararat that kind of gets the claim, it's the entire region is sort of said to be where it landed. And he has one one last little fact for you. The first Encyclopedia Britannica in 1771 told this story as fact. Mm. There was no sort of, this is a biblical story, because it was so old, the, the first edition of Britannica. This was just truth, absolute truth that this story happened. Mm. So the most kind of reliable reference book in the world, Tret, the story of Noah's Ark, as if it was sort of <laughs> <laughs> completely true. Well, it was 1770. Yeah, true, true enough. So anyway, flash forward from there to the mid-1900s, and something called, and this is the SOBS fact, the Ararat Anomaly. Yes. <laughs> right, so, my next fact. <laughs> in 1949, an air reconnaissance mission by the US Air Force was uh, flying around <laughs> Turkey. This is going to be good. <laughs> and sort of that part of kind of Asia in the Middle East. And um, at a height of 15,500 feet on Mount Ararat, which is about 12 to 1300 feet short of the peak of the mountain. There's a, a, they discovered a sort of snow-covered oblong shape sort of projecting out from the side of the, the mountain. And I thought, this is a little bit unusual. Hang on a second. This is Mount Ararat. What have we discovered up here? So the because this was a secret mission and because it's geopolitically a very fraught period of history, it's kind of, you know, early Cold War, I guess, 1940s, mm. maybe a little bit too early for Cold War, but certainly around about that kind of year. Um, and plus it's on the sort of Turk-Soviet border, this mountain. So it's in a kind of quite shady geographical region as well. Plus it's a very difficult region to access anyway, geographically. So regardless of the politics involved, geographically it's quite hard to get to. This was all kind of covered up, but there was a series of other flights, uh, reconnaissance flights and, and all sorts of things took place over the following few years. But it was covered up and covered up and covered up until 1995 
when a freedom of information request was made. You've been relying a lot on these <laughs> in uh, recent episodes, Paul. And these photos from this 1949 Air Reconnaissance mission was released. And lo and behold, not on the peak of Mount Ararat, but as I say, about a thousand feet down from that, there's this very bizarre shaped bar sticking out from the side of the mountain, which is now called the Ararat Anomaly. And the creationists of the world will say that this is proof that Noah's Ark is actually up there on this mountain and there's this huge conspiracy to cover it up because it proves that they're correct in what they think and all the rest of it. Um, the reality is that this has never been investigated because it's in such a geographically impenetrable area and it's a geopolitically very impenetrable area and it's just a big rock. There's nothing actually that interesting to say about it. It's just a sort of, it's like pulpit rock in mm. Norway. It's just a sort of oddly shaped promontory on the side of the mountain that's covered in snow. Um, but this is the thing that uh, somewhere in the snow covered mountains in Turkey is a shape that people claim is Noah's Ark. So how far is Mount Ararat from what was then the Soviet border? It w It's on the border between right Russia border. and Turkey. So it'll mm. now be... Um, it must be in Armenia now, I think, after mm. the kind of Soviet Union is all sort of splintered apart. Mm. So I don't think Russia has got a claim to it anymore, but it's still a very kind of touchy I was going to ask why the US was flying around there. Like 49. If it's on the border with the Soviets. Yeah. But then you said it's very inaccessible, so you wouldn't expect the Soviets to be coming down that way anyway. I, I, don't, I don't know. You're reading a lot into this. I'm just this. trying to question, like, why... why <laughs> I, I don't know the ins and outs of what the, the Soviet Union would have thought in 1949. And if the Soviets had seen a US plane coming over, wouldn't they have tried to shoot it down? If well, Maybe they didn't have any kind of watch there whatsoever. It's right up in the... I mean, these mountains are tall. Mm. Um, you said they're inaccessible even today. Like, surely... Oh, you'd be able to get to Mount Ararat today. Mm. Um but it's kind of like, think the Himalayas. It's a sort mm. of very vast mountain range. It's not like there's sort of a mountain with a nice road around it and a path up the side of it. But no one's ever climbed it to have a look? No expeditions? Oh, I don't, that's a good question. I don't know whether Mount Ararat has ever been summited. I'm guessing that it has. Must have been. Because it's a very famous mm. mountain. And those names that I gave you at the start, um, the ambassador, James Bryce, yeah, Viscount James Bryce, uh, he climbed Ararat, not all the way up to the top, so he didn't see this kind of promontory, but he went past the tree line mm. and discovered, uh, well, he said that he saw sort of hand-hewn timbers past the tree line, which he claimed was proof that there was something up there that was made out of wood. And he didn't take a picture or anything? Or... Well, he was up there in 1876. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. And they had cameras in 1876, Paul? Not halfway up a Turkish mountain, I don't think Well, if he bothered. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, and his is kind of one of these stories that um, people have found things above the tree line on the mountain, but they've never gone all the way up to the very, very top of it. So where did the Soviets go when they were looking for the Ark? The oh, Ark? I don't know. That's the Tsar Nicholas oh, yeah. story, that that's all fairly sort of shady, whether that actually happened or not. Mm. So the details of that are pretty patchy. I don't know how to come down on this one because... Is it I, an interesting story, though? It's an interesting story, but I, I don't like it in the sense that... Not that I... <laughs> 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 in the sense that you're a terrible storyteller. No, I don't like it in the fact that it doesn't... Something isn't gluing right with his... Mm -hmm. Like, just flying about, he sees a lump. Oh, yeah, that's, that's the arc. That's mm -hmm. Noah's Ark. There you go. And then it was like, oh, 995. Yeah, there it is. Like, it just... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we found this 36 years ago. Yeah. It's like, it doesn't... 
but I'm actually going to say this is true. Mm. I'm going to swing down on this. <laughs> these last tree. minute changes. Some yeah. of these have worked in the past. They have, and I think it's going to work again because I'm thinking last week, I think it was last week, you had those nuclear bomb stories where two nuclear bombs fell out of a plane. Oh, yeah. So you, you're loving your Cold War facts. I can't remember that, though. That's You see, I remember. I, I'm all about the tactics on this game. But that's not a tactic if I can't remember it. <laughs> <laughs> that is my tactic. I rely on you not remembering what you've done. True. So on that basis, I'm going to say this is true. Oh, right, okay. Final answer? Yes. Right. The Ararat Anomaly exists and is true hey, yeah it's a bit go. of an unsolved mystery i know you like your unsolved mystery stories see um, I, would, I would have taken it and then added some like spooky monsters around it yeah that's true you'd say like <laughs> the ghost of noah still haunts it. <laughs> so, but no this is completely true you can look these pictures up online now does, and does it actually look like an ark it's it looks like i was saying it looks like pulpit rock in norway mm. but longer it just looks like an odd rock formation mm. uh, that's covered in snow but yeah the creationists absolutely pounce at this a part of what they say is that the bible says that the ark is on the summit of the mountain and the reason why no one's ever discovered it is because this isn't on the summit so people have kind of been looking in the wrong place mm. they've been looking at the top of the mountain and it's actually sort of a thousand foot down from there so the they, they just uh, fell off <laughs> they absolutely <laughs> love this story mm. um it is by the looks of it just a rock formation mm. um but yeah it's completely true that it certainly exists and that there is a mystery attached to it there you go we have at least one more destination to record another episode <laughs> of yes of yes i'll from. let you do that one on your own <laughs> <laughs> So, well done to me. Nice fact, though, Paul. Mm. Uh, Noah's another place to visit. I don't think we've done a Bible story before. We haven't. It's kind of opened up possibilities. I'm thinking of other Bible stories to do next. Oh, God, it'll be like <laughs> Methuselah wrote a recipe book. <laughs> I think we'd say Methuselah was a wrestler. <laughs> That'll be the episode after. Methuselah was a pro wrestler. He was high, he was a high, <laughs> high school wrestler. But anyway, I'm getting right back on track with crazy yes or BS facts. Mm. Because uh, I'm moving on to science. Oh God! Okay, right. And I'm gonna make. I'm trying to make a point on this one. I'm gonna talk about some crazy scientific theories that people have had in the past. Okay. Because as you know, we, where we in the past we didn't have a lot of. By them. people, do you mean you? <laughs> <laughs> These are the theories I've come up with last night. The one. The point I'm trying to make is. Before the modern scientific method, we relied mm-hmm. on just observation to kind of work things out. Right. Which is why in the ancient world, poor Jeff the peasant, he looks at the sun. He says, well, that sun's definitely moving. The earth isn't moving. You can't tell me otherwise. All right. OK. So I'm yeah. saying I'm trying to have some sympathy for both of us, Paul. In our lack of understanding of scientific concepts. I, I was going to say speak for yourself, but absolutely not. Our record, <laughs> the record speaks for itself on this. Just just. For my own record, mm. I don't believe the sun moves around the earth, by the way. <laughs> Just wanted to get that out there. Yes. Before, before people started We're thinking. not that bad. <laughs> but the point I'm making is a lot of these crazy theories in the past arose from the fact that we were just looking at things and kind yeah. of making assumptions about them. Th- this is true. Which is why I'm kind of trying to defend the people of the past. Okay. Lay off them a bit. I have no idea where you're going with this. Well, I'm going to kind of give you a couple of crazy scientific theories from the right. ancient world first. Right. And then I'm going to give you a third one, which could be oh, right. could okay. be completely true, or one that I've completely I like made the sound up. of this already. You okay. see, this is, this is much more comfortable yes or BS mm. territory. It's a bit, bit kooky. Okay. So, 
the first theory, this is a real theory. Mm. Um, Aristotle kind of posited that life could be spontaneously generated from things. Mm. So he said that life regularly came from non-living matter. So, for example, when he saw creatures rising out of the sand, he said, oh, well, oh. it must be because... The sand has created those creatures. <laughs> not that they just live in the sand. They just live there. Well, nobody saw them go in there, Paul. All I, all I know is I went to the beach and I saw things rising up yeah. out of the sand. Okay. He also applied this theory to um, maggots in dead flesh. Oh. He theorized that the dead flesh itself created the maggots. Oh, right. Because they okay. didn't have a... Con- well, obviously, they didn't think that the flies landed on it and then laid eggs. Yeah. They just thought, oh, right. The, these maggots. The maggots were there to begin with. The maggots were there to begin with. <laughs> right. Okay. I mean, it's easy to laugh at these sort of people now. It, it would but... make perfect sense. Exactly. Yeah. It's like the migration thing. Is that people because the swallows disappeared in mm. the autumn? People used to think that they hibernated underwater because <laughs> they just had no concept of where they went. There's no. There's no even basis for that. Either. Did anyone <laughs> see them flying into the water? Well, they kind of skim across the top of water to eat flies and stuff. So people mm. thought that that in the autumn they just went all the way in and then didn't come out until like april (laughs) (laughs) but we have another theory from galen uh, galen of pergamon oh yeah okay um which i actually know who he is i know i thought you might actually know Mm. him. he was a kind of a very he was a roman physician well Mm. greek physician living in the roman empire Mm -hmm. Uh, pergamon was a greek city in modern day turkey Oh, Um, right, okay. So he was an anatomist and physician, and he posited that the liver actually circulated the blood and the heart was the vital spirit of the body because he never Not much of an anatomist. (laughs) (laughs) You know, he'd never actually dissected a human body. Oh, well, there's there's his problem. (laughs) He was basing it on, like, other animal dissections that he'd done. But in his mind, he was looking at a heart and... He obviously, he'd never seen a heart pump blood because you'd have to kill someone or kill the animal. Mm. And you can feel it in your chest all of the mm-hmm. time. So to him, it was like, hmm, this is, this is this vital spirit. I have no idea what's <laughs> happening to the blood. But he performed animal autopsies. I think so. And examinations. Yes, yes. The heart looks like a big pump <laughs> and it has pipes coming out of it and chambers. You... <laughs> Tell me, the liver's just... if you could open an animal 2,000 years ago, that you could see exactly what every single thing does. Yeah, but there. the liver just kind of looks like the same thing all the way through, doesn't it? But it's really beefy and meaty. It's like it's the, one of the biggest But it doesn't organs. look like a pump. <laughs> but it, Who it, is this mad man? Li- <laughs> <laughs> the liver, because it's big, it looks like the kind of factory of the body. It's uh, making things. So. It's, it's pumping blood. But uh, that was his scientific theory. Okay. So we're on to the third... Okay, so this is the one you've made up. I mean, uh, the... <laughs> I could have made it up. Could be true. Okay. Are you ready? Right. We're in for a wild ride. Oh, no. We're going back to the Byzantine Empire. <laughs> Another favourite of mine. You've made this up. <laughs> we're going to a good friend of mine, Musulius of Nicomedia. Okay, right. Uh, now, Nicomedia was in the Byzantine Empire. Mm-hmm. It's now called Izmit. And it's in modern Turkey. It's now called Nickelodeon. (laughs) (laughs) And I've made it up. Now, he was mostly a philosopher, but he was also the bishop of Nicomedia. So he had a bit of of free time to kind of do some research. (laughs) Because he's holding down two jobs. Well known for the free time. (laughs) And his theory was that he believed that soil was alive. Uh Now, he's not... He's not... That far off, because we now know that 
billions of bacteria live in yeah. the soil. And it is kind of a type of living organism, but not in the way that Musulios would have understood it. Right. He thought it was like its own creature. Right. And that he thought when you took bits of it away and mm-hmm. it dried out, then that part of it died. <laughs> but once you put it back into the hole, mm. it became alive again. Okay. He thought that all soil on Earth was connected in this way, that it was kind of one life of Earth. Okay. And it gets even better than this, because he thought, in his mind, soil was immortal as long as it had water. It could always repair itself, right. pour a bit of water on it, it, it lives again. Anything you put in it, it, it would, like the plants would grow mm. and get sustenance from the soil. So he theorized that he himself could be immortal if he was connected to the soil. Right. So he's, he's going to do a Dracula here and sleep in his own earth. He did. Oh, God. He, he originally brought in a lot of soil into kind of like a mud bath in his house. Oh, right. Um, but he kept, his servants would keep the mud wet. So that, right. And it was his theory that if he slept in there every night, that he would get the benefits of the soil and that it would keep him alive like it keeps oh. plants alive. Oh, I bet he had lovely skin. <laughs> so smooth right until his 80s. <laughs> But he didn't, he said he wasn't really feeling any benefits from that. I wonder why. (laughs) Unsurprisingly. (laughs) And he said, ah, that's because it's not connected to the main organism of soil. (laughs) Okay. So he had his servants dig a small pit in the back Mm -hmm. garden, which he would bury himself in every night. It wasn't completely buried in it, obviously. He was just kind of a light covering over it. (laughs) Uncomfortable. (laughs) So he could, if he needed to get up and use the toilet or anything in the night, he could. Like he, he, right. wasn't, he wasn't completely trapped in there all night. So he wasn't going to soil himself. <laughs> oh! <laughs> and he had a tent put over this kind of soil oh, sort bed. Of modesty curtain. <laughs> <laughs> to, protect him, to protect him from the elements as oh, well. Oh, okay. Like he's, he's not just going to live outside in a mud bed. <laughs> but he was living inside <laughs> in a mud bed. Well, he had a shelter over his head there. Well, yeah. And he actually, he lived until he was 82. But that had nothing to do with the soil. Uh, uh, no. Yeah. <laughs> no. I don't know. Maybe he maybe he was onto something. To be fair, 82 in the ancient world, that's a grand old age. Yeah, and he was, he was bishop in the 600s. I think he was to like uh, 710. He was the bishop of Nicomedia. Okay. Uh, he lived so a very... about half an hour. <laughs> <laughs> I love jokes like that. Probably <laughs> because he swallowed all that mud. <laughs> So, that is my fact, Paul. Did Musulios of Nicomedia believe the soil was alive and immerse himself in it in an attempt at immortality? Okay. This is interesting. I like this. This is a good story. I I think it sounds quite plausible because, as you say, you set it up with those two stories before of sort of theories from the ancient world. And, Mm. uh, yeah, you're right, theories like that were ridiculous back then like the the idea that the womb floats around a woman's body causing <laughs> causing problems and that's what that's what hysteria originally was and stuff uh yeah that so yeah we kind of didn't really know very much back then in terms of that so yeah setting it up like that makes sense it does make it sound plausible and the idea yeah that you it, it, things dry out with the soil dries out when you take it away from uh, yeah that all kind of makes sense and i can imagine people not really 
I mean, soil's weird. Like, what? Mm. It's odd. You know, there's no sort of obvious answer to what it is. Mm-hmm. So people would think that it's, yeah, could, it makes sense that people might think that it's some sort of living, breathing entity, I guess. Mm. It all kind of does make sense. But I'm also really thinking that you could have made this up. You've got two good stories. Mm. You throw in a weird person from history and concoct some nonsense and make it sound as plausible as possible. The whole thing about sleeping in an earth bath has <laughs> kind of thrown me off a little bit. It is sort of Dracula-esque. Mm. And then, because it wasn't connected to the outside, he decided to sleep in a pit <laughs> covered in soil. In the back garden. Yeah, with a tent over it for, <laughs> for modesty, so his neighbours don't look at him. That is what's sticking out for me. And it might be enough to make me say this is BS. So the mud bath would have swayed you, but the mud bed pit in the back, in the back <laughs> no, I think was a step too far. I, I think the whole thing of him sleeping in soil, I think, is maybe a step too far. I can see him, if he thought that kind of carrying out sort of experiments and things, sleeping in a pit or sleeping in a bath. I found that a little bit unusual. Like, what did his wife think? <laughs> was she there as well? I don't know. Not going to get much consummation. I don't done. know if he was married being the bishop. Oh, true. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So this is bringing me down onto BS, even though I think this is very, very, very plausible. Mm. I think I'm coming down on the side of this maybe being made up. Is that your final answer? Yes. I'm going to say this is BS. I think I might regret that, but I'm, I'm going to say it's BS. Musulios of Nukamedia. <laughs> Is completely made up. <laughs> even the, even the person. Oh really? I don't know who the bishop of Nicomedia was. <laughs> oh, the whole shebang was. The whole in... shebang's made up. See, it was this thing of sleeping in a mud bath, and then oh, this isn't quite cutting it for us. <laughs> it needs to be outdoors. <laughs> Where did you get this from? That was just one step too far. Ah, oh, I see. Yeah. If, I'd, if I'd kept it in the mud bath indoors, would, would you have? Maybe I don't know. It's this thing of like I'm wanting to be immortal, and yeah, I don't know. You nearly had me, but there was something not quite there. See, with that. I was going to use one extra fact in inverted commas that he observed the fact that trees never seem to die. Oh, that, that's that they would a, yeah. kind of sprout fruit every year for mm. hundreds of years, and no one could remember that tree not being there. Oh, say, that's oh well, it must be because you're connected to the soil. Maybe that would have swayed you. Maybe, but then still you've got someone sleeping in a pit in his back garden. <laughs> it's literally just what I plan to do tonight. <laughs> what was this name again? Musulios of Nicomedia. Where did you get that from? I bet that's like the name of a takeaway around the corner. I <laughs> well, I googled Greek names. Oh, God. <laughs> and then I looked at Byzantine cities. Uh, yeah, because I'd heard of Nic- Nicomedia before, mm. so I knew that existed. Oh, yeah, it, it is modern, isn't it, in Turkey as well? Right. So that does it. That's the only yeah. thing true about this entire <laughs> the name fact. Of bishop. What did you say? He was a bishop, and what was his other job? Uh, philosopher. Oh, right, okay. Yeah, that's, that makes sense, I suppose, in the ancient world. Oh, well, almost, but not quite. <laughs> well, time for me to go to my mud bed. <laughs> oh, listen to the next fact. Right, you so nearly had me with that. Yeah, but not quite. So, from the ridiculous to the even more ridiculous. Oh, God. Uh, Now, I know it's normally up to you to throw in uh, terrible jokes, Mm -hmm. but I'm going to tell you a joke. Oh. (laughs) And I'm going to tell you it 
in Japanese. <laughs> <laughs> so I should set this up. But uh, Anthony, you lived in Japan for three years. Yeah, I don't think I've ever mentioned that on the podcast. Before. <laughs> yeah, it comes no, up every now and then. It's completely brand new information to anyone. If you knew Anthony, um, you probably wouldn't know that because uh, you've come back from Japan unable to speak Japanese. <laughs> I could when I first got back. <laughs> to be fair, yeah. You've I've probably fr- just got a bit rusty, have you? Oh, a bit. <laughs> yes, you've Rust- rusted to pieces and no. fallen apart. <laughs> Not rusted, you've fallen oxidised. <laughs> um, so, let, you'll be able to correct me, no doubt, in my uh, pronunciation I of all of this. I won't at all. Okay. So, there's uh, two, two people uh, talking here, so I'm gonna, I won't put on different voices, mm. but uh, imagine these are two people. Mm. First person says, Hawaii ni hashain ga inai and the other person says naze and the other person replies hawaii kara <laughs> I don't get it. <laughs> there's my joke uh, so that reads like this uh, there are no dentists in hawaii says the per- first mm. person and the other person goes why which i think must be naze is that mm-hmm. right uh, and the reply is their teeth are just so good. Uh, yeah, hilarious, isn't it? It, it is. I, it makes a lot of sense. Now, apparently this is based on the fact that the uh, Japanese name for Hawaii, which is Hawaii, mm-hmm. um, sounds very much like uh, teeth are good in Japanese. So it's a pun. Mm. Hawaii. Mm. Does that sound right? I can't remember how to say teeth. <laughs> I've just told you. <laughs> Although E is good. Oh, is it? It is. Two letter I's yeah. transliterated. Is that right? Yes. Oh, well, roughly. See, I, I, I'm fluent in, <laughs> ja- in Japanese. <laughs> yeah. But all of this nonsense <clears throat> is to prove a point that some jokes just don't work across languages and across cultures. Mm. Okay. So uh, uh, as fabulous as that Japanese pun is, uh, we're not sticking with Japanese. Mm. I'm going to tell you about some jokes in Hungarian. <laughs> oh, God. Okay. Uh, so this is the yes or BS fact. I'm going to tell you the facts and then I'm just going to give you all the jokes. Okay. <laughs> Hopefully not in Hungarian. Oh, no. These are all English. I don't oh, actually have God. the Hungarian. Uh, because in Hungarian, there is... Um, you know how he, we have like sort of doctor doctor jokes mm. there's a sort of whole clade of jokes that have this sort of whole setup mm. in hungarian and in romanian so it might be in a couple of other languages but certainly in hungarian uh, they have a set of jokes about a character called aggressive kishnalats <laughs> i think i can translate that one which is aggressive kishnalats <laughs> <laughs> well kishnalats is um the hungarian word for a piglet. Oh. So uh, it literally means little pig, actually. Oh, not aggressive piglet. So, yes. So the character is aggressive piglet. Oh, right. So aggressive kishmalats. Winnie the Pooh took a turn, didn't he? <laughs> <laughs> After Pooh popped his clogs, piglet, piglet went off the rails. Uh, so aggressive kishmalats mm-hmm. uh, turns up in lots and lots of absolutely hilarious Hungarian jokes. Mm-hmm. And this is the yes or BS. Is this a character that I've invented? <laughs> and all of these jokes are jokes I've made oh, up? Oh, God. Or are these genuinely... I mean, Hungarian people listening to this, they'll be crying their eyes out with laughter. <laughs> so here's joke number one. Okay. Okay. Piglet, a- aggressive piglet, <laughs> is sitting in a tree. <laughs> His friend Rabbit walks past, as it happens. And says, Piglet, what are you doing in the tree? And Piglet says, 
I'm eating cherries. He's quite aggressive, this piglet. Mm. So Rabbit says, but that's a pine tree. And Piglet replies, shut up, I brought my own cherries. <laughs> <laughs> that's actually not bad. That does translate. Okay. <clears throat> I can see aggressive piglets doing so, this. That's uh, the first joke that I wrote. <laughs> that I found out. Second one. There's an old lady on a bus. <laughs> this is, sorry, just to stop you. This is like the worst 1920s vaudeville double X. This is my uh, stand-up audition. <laughs> this is my Britain's Got Talent moment. Gather around, everyone. So there's, there's an old lady a, on a bus. There's an old lady on a bus. Uh, and she gets on and she's walking down, walking down the aisle in the middle of the bus and there's an aggressive piglet. He sat there. <laughs> so he says to her, would you like to sit down? And she says, yes, please. An aggressive piglet replies, well, you can't. <laughs> You've written these. That's the joke. <laughs> Isn't it funny? <laughs> um, now, I, said, I mentioned Dr. Dr. jokes before, but there are a sort of cleared of aggressive piglet jokes where he goes to the doctors. <laughs> right, so it's a crossover. <laughs> so piglet's turned up at the doctor's office and aggressive piglet says... Doctor, I have anger issues. It's got a bit meta here. Mm. He's at, like, you know, like he wants this. advice. And the doctor says, what makes you think that? An aggressive piglet replies, too many questions. <laughs> <laughs> this has to be you. This has to be. Would you like another doctor? Go Joe? on then. So piglet again, he's, he's gone back to the doctors <clears throat> and he says, oh, doctor, I was kicked by a camel. Oh. And the doctor says, where did it kick you? And he says, where do you think, idiot, in the desert? <laughs> Are there many more to I'm end a... this interminable suffering? I've got three more. <laughs> three, oh God. Now, so there's a set of jokes that are um, about him going to the doctors, but mm. there's also a set of jokes where he comes across various creatures that grant him wishes. Okay. One of these... <coughs> Is a magical golden fish. Of course so it is. Piglet catches a golden fish in the river, and the fish says, Aggressive Piglet, I will grant you three wishes. And Aggressive Piglet replies, Die! If this is true, I I really like Hungarian humour now. Do you want one more of these wish-granting jokes? Go on. Okay. Piglet is again walking through his forest and the fairy godmother appears. And she says, Piglet, I will grant you three wishes. So Piglet says, drive a nail into that tree that no one can ever pull out. Mm -hmm. And she goes, oh, okay. And she does this. What next? <laughs> he says, pull it out. <laughs> <laughs> and I've got a very, very last one. Okay. Put last, this is my going out, you know, the curtain's just about to fall down on my act. Aggressive Piglet meets a nun in the street okay. and he headbutts her. Oh. And shouts, You're weak, Batman. <laughs> <laughs> so. These, <laughs> I. Don't know where to start. That's the end of my uh, stand-up career. <laughs> um, but this is proving my point that there are jokes that questionably cross cultures. You said the curtain has gone down on your act. I think the crowd has long gone. I think the curtain's <laughs> gone down on this whole project. <laughs>
Right. I'd, for, uh, <laughs> first of Right. Uh, you... God, if you've written those... You are already having a crisis. I am, because I don't think you would go to that much effort to write that many jokes. I wrote a Dr. Seuss book. Part of me, but you wrote two sentences of one, to be fair, Paul. Now, I... Okay, right. It's like you don't know where to begin. Okay, I've got my thoughts together. Right. You have either googled the Hungarian for aggressive piglet and then written these jokes yourself... Or these are genuine jokes and aggressive piglet is a thing. Yes. I really hope That's aggressive piglet I really hope aggressive piglet is a thing. I would watch a full hour set of aggressive piglet. Because some of those jokes were really good. If, <laughs> if you... like how this was a whole point to prove that jokes don't move across cultures. <laughs> and you laughed at all of them. It's because they're so ludicrous. That always translates well with me. That okay. sort of stuff. I don't think you would have written that many if it was a lie. Maybe I, I think... created this character and just had so much fun that <laughs> you're telling me you sat in Starbucks this morning and created the character of aggressive piglet and wrote about eight jokes. <laughs> and I don't think you would write a joke about headbutting a nun. <laughs> I, don't th- I don't think that's your M.O. Jones. <laughs> well, it's a chapter in my autobiography, but it's not a joke. <laughs> I think. This is completely true, and I love Aggressive Piglet. If you've hoodwinked me on this, and you've written all of these... Right, I'm going to say it's true. Okay. Final answer. There are a set of jokes in Hungarian (laughs) about an impossibly rude pig. Oh, God. This is totally something you would do to trick us as well. No, it's true. It has to be. Okay. Final answer? Yes. All of those jokes. Please be true. And Aggressive Piglet is completely true. Ah, thank God. (laughs) There's dozens of them. That is amazing. Yeah, and um, yeah, Aggressive Kishmalats is like a real character in Hungarian humour. But you say humour doesn't translate, but a lot of the times it does, I think. The more of these that I was finding, it was kind of like, the payoff is just so ludicrous that you've <laughs> kind of a, got to laugh at it. That's why I love it. I'm, but the thing is, like, surreal humour can be, well, it's not really surreal humour, it's just more aggressive yeah. humour. But that can be popular over here too. I mean, like needlessly it? aggressive. Yeah, like, that's what makes it so funny. <laughs> like, take that, Batman. <laughs> That's what makes it so ludicrous. That is my kind of humour, and I am going to research Aggressive Piglet. Yeah, give it a Google. Yeah, I'm sure there must be like a web series that's like animated all of these or something. So depending on how famous Aggressive Piglet is, I think you could genuinely get a stand-up career going on. That was actually genuinely my audition right there. (laughs) (laughs) I'll play Piglet, and you can play uh, Rabbit, and we'll we'll have (laughs) just two other worlds. If we don't become millionaires off the back of that, (laughs) nothing will. So in that short break, we have agreed to rename the podcast Aggressive Piglet. (laughs) 
and we only tell aggressive piglet jokes from, from now, now on. Yeah. <laughs> An hour of them every week, everyone. But how do I follow that? That's Yeah, <laughs> true. Yeah, like how I'm do on, you follow that? I feel like I've had such a come down with this next fact. I feel like we should just wrap up early. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a draw, that'll do. But for my final fact, I have a joke in here of my own. Oh no, I forgot but, you had a joke. But after the aggressive piglet, I'd say it's it's nothing. But it's at my nothing. expense. It's at your it? expense, so that makes it better. Okay, come on then. But you might remember last week I mistook Bristol for being in Devon. <laughs> Yes. So I felt I've got a lot of making up to do to the southwest. Right. Um, now Devon has already had a fact a couple of seasons ago. Oh about the yeah, Devil's well, Footprints. The Devil's Footprints. Yeah, that um, was a good fact. So I'm going to give Somerset a shout out this week. Okay. And we're going to talk about sea-dwelling dinosaurs. Oh right. And you see, I, I didn't think you were going to go this way. Yeah. Remember, I love dinosaurs. That's exactly why this fact's in here. I'm okay. making it up to the southwest, and I'm also. Playing the all love of dinosaurs. Right. I don't know how much you know about the kind of ocean-dwelling dinosaurs. Well, technically, a lot of them weren't dinosaurs. Yeah, that was going to be one of my little bonuses. Yeah. Do you know why they got so big? It's <sighs> uh, so quite a fatty diet. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, there's some theories around that based on kind of how the modern blue whale has gotten so big. Yeah, because there is the thing of you couldn't be that big on land because mm. you need the water to sort of support your weight. That's one of the reasons. But as I was researching this, there was an interesting fact about kind of the evolution of the blue whale. Oh. That the reason it's a mammal is because it was a mammal that has that had gone back into the water. Yes, I have, I've heard this before. This kind of fish came out on land and became mammals, and then some mm. mammals returned to the sea. Which seems like an odd decision to make. This, exactly. It's kind of it's the when I was reading about this, the kind of the animal they thought it was that this might be the modern ancestor of the mm. blue whale it was kind of like a, a goat-like creature. That lived oh. by the water. So it was about the size of a goat. Right. Used to kind of live in the shallows. Imagine a goat <clears throat> the size of a blue whale. <laughs> that would be comedy. Now that would be a fact yeah. to finish on. So it's just kind of it it started to forage more and more in the water for its food until right. eventually over the course of several million years it started yeah. to evolve into the whale that we see today. Right. So when it became an ocean dwelling creature it was still about the size of a goat. Right. But they think it took about five million generations to get as big as the blue whale. Wow. And one of the reasons is you're right, because the water supports massive, massive creatures, which yeah. is why there were so many terrifying ocean creatures yeah. around the time of the dinosaurs. Uh, my favourite is, of course, uh, the plesiosaurs. The plesiosaurs, which yeah. Which have the really long necks. Yeah, that's what people think <clears throat> of the Loch Ness Monster exactly. is or something, it's isn't it? It's one of my favourites. I'd love to see them come back. <laughs> <laughs> I, d- I think that's unlikely. <laughs> but you never know. The well, there might be is, one in Loch Ness. The ocean is enormous. Mm. And that's another reason why these creatures could get so big, because... The ocean is so big, uh, the competition, the pool of competition is much smaller. Ah, right. Oh, that's so interesting. resources everywhere. So it's just eating, right. eating, eating. So it can be much more successful. Which is why blue whales evolved such a massive size that they are today. Uh, yeah, because is the blue whale like the biggest thing that's ever lived? Yes. Yeah. But we're getting under this fact soon. Right, okay. I don't want to preempt this, you. This, uh, this might I'm just blue... waiting for a joke about the. It's coming. It's coming. Okay. But the reason I'm talking about the blue whale so much is because the creature I'm going to talk about might be bigger than a blue whale. Ah, right. It's a very okay. recent discovery. Right. That I made up this morning. <laughs> <laughs> no, the the final fact about the blue whale was was my joke. Did you know that in one mouthful. A blue whale can eat up to half a million calories of krill. Very much like your own takeaway diet at the weekend. 
when are you going to tell the joke? <laughs> oh. <laughs> so we've got a bit of context about giant sea creatures now. Right. About why they got so big. Mm-hmm. And actually, that's one of the reasons why most of the dinosaurs didn't get as big as the blue whale because they were competing with each other. Ah, uh, right. Whereas okay. The blue whale had nobody to compete with. Yeah. So in theory, the blue whale is just going to keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Until the whole sea is just one, <laughs> one ruled, blue whale. Until we're ruled by a giant blue whale. <laughs> it's kind of actually it's the same with humans as well, because we, as diets improve, we get bigger and taller and more muscular. Yeah, but is the, not, is the evolutionary thing that we're not going to get smaller again because we have no need to be tall anymore? Mm, I don't know. I've done so much research on the evolution of the blue whale. I've <laughs> neglected the evolution of humankind. You've forgotten that we're all going to turn into Morlocks one day. <laughs> <laughs> but so bringing it back to Somerset now. Okay. And have you ever heard of the ichthyosaurs? I have. I thought you might have done being a fan. Fish lizard, it means. Yes. Mm. Oh, you're just stealing all my little bones. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Jump in there with an etymology <laughs> so fact. Do you, want, do you want to take this fact <laughs> But my fact is... So from here on, is it yes or BS? Okay. Was there a giant ichthyosaur skull found on the Somerset coast in 2016? Now, this ichthyosaur skull, uh, it's about 205 million years old. Mm -hmm. And it was found near the tiny hamlet of Lilstock on the north coast of Somerset. It was found by a man called Paul de la Salle. Uh, He was a fossil collector and he was the co-author of a study that was written after they found this. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't the full skull of the ichthyosaur. It was a 3.2 feet long bottom jawbone, which they extrapolated would be about the size of a blue whale, if not slightly bigger than a modern blue whale. Oh, right. So they found the world's biggest ichthyosaur. They estimated it about... 29 meters to 30 meters right and that's about the size of a blue whale right okay if they can find more of these bones on the coast and confirm that this was the biggest ichthyosaur that ever lived Mm. then the crown is taken away from our friend the blue whale and Ah. goes to the somerset ichthyosaur that is my fact paul little nice little one to finish with yeah believable but is it 100 percent? this quite often happens with uh when they find sort of dinosaur remains and things they'll find like half a rib or something mm. and they'll go you know what i bet it was the size of a skyscraper and then when they find the rest of it it's like you know it's just like the size of a tv mm. um so yeah the idea that it was only just a sort of fraction of the bone that makes sense mm. um an ichthyosaur that was that big mm. that long ago that's now i did take this into account because i researched the average size of british ichthyosaurs mm-hmm. well the ones that were around the british isles and they were Usually much, much smaller, about yeah. uh, 5 to 15 feet, maybe. Right. So they weren't the giants of the ocean that this one was. Okay. They did get some big ichthyosaurs, but... Okay. And is it sort of... You're saying ichthyosaur, so is this like a plesiosaur in that it's a sort of long-necked thing? Not long-necked. It's more like a really fat dolphin. It has a very long snout, though. Oh, right. Imagine an enormous dolphin, but with a long snout right loads of jagged teeth so it's not a sort of uh loch ness monster shape it's not thing. a loch ness monster shape i right. just brought the plesiosaur up because that's my favorite yeah ocean dinosaur okay right okay and right so if if it's got this really long jawbone mm. and they found a fragment of it mm. that was about three, three foot point, long yeah about three foot long from a fragment that was three foot long so say the whole jaw was about four foot long mm. that's they're basing it on the size of other 
ichthyosaur jaws that mm-hmm. where they have a full skeleton of and they're kind of saying what percentage of the full body is the jaw is the jaw extrapolate that up for this one okay. and that's where they've got the numbers from about yeah this is a difficult one because that mm. is again that sounds really plausible but again you know i like dinosaurs Mm. And you want a Somerset fact to <laughs> recover from your Bristolian knowledge. So have you just concocted this? Or have you stumbled across this in looking for a fact to do with Somerset? Mm. It all sort of makes sense. The, well, you know what's sticking out is that the guy was called Paul de la Salle, mm-hmm. which is my name and the name of our... An old youth club that used to be <laughs> yeah, in our school. High school youth club, yeah. Mm. So it's either a really clever trap... Or, or a coincidence. Absolute amazing coincidence. I'm thinking it might just be a coincidence and that this is all true. As long as a blue whale from just the fragment of a skull. They do find a lot of dinosaur remains down the south. Because wasn't the Mary Anning fossil, that, like the very first dinosaur fossil in the 1820s? She was in Devon or something. Mm. Oh, she was certainly kind of southern England. So that makes sense that it would be in Somerset. I'm tempted to say that this is BS. But it all, again, it all sounds really plausible. But ready for an answer? Yeah, it's almost too plausible. Mm. I'm going to say maybe this is BS. Yeah, the final answer, this is BS, but I think I might have that wrong. But this is BS. This fact is completely true. Oh, that's good, though. Yeah, I don't mind losing the point there. Even the name, when I saw Paul de la Salle. (laughs) That just sounds like a trap you would set. <laughs> there you go. I've ended on... That's interesting. So there is, there's an ichthyosaur that kind of rivals the blue whale for size. Potentially. But like, like you said before, like we can find these bones and then yeah. it'll turn out to be... It'll have had a tiny two-foot-long body. Yeah. It's had an enormous jaw. Yeah. So it Something could like well that. be they find it's not as big as they thought. Yeah. Uh, wow, that's interesting, though. Yeah. yeah. I think I might have rescued my reputation with the Southwest. Yes. And I'm kind of glad to have given you the point in that respect. Sigh of relief. We have been all around the houses today. I'm exhausted. Yeah, dinosaurs, pigs, (laughs) Tibet. Aggressive piglet takes the takes yeah. the win though I think. Um, so we're kind of changing direction one last time, and we're going kind of back into my wheelhouse with some classical music Ooh. knowledge. And again, we're going to revisit my favourite composer. Oh God, this is a test, isn't it? Mm-hmm. No, I know this. Uh... Last time I asked this, I think you said Wiz Khalifa. <laughs> but I know, I do, I. I should remember this. Detail- yeah. oh, forgotten. Oh, it's J.S. Bach. That's the one. Yeah. Born in uh, Eisenach, 1685. Died in Leipzig, 1750. Massive family. He had 20 children. Part of a whole dynasty of kind of musicians and composers and things. Some of his famous works, Brandenburg Concertos. You heard of those? Brandenburg Concertos. Rings a bell, but I couldn't sing it. The Preludes and Fugues. You couldn't sing it. <laughs> I'd, I'd think not. <laughs> Hum it, at yeah. least, anyway. St. Matthew's Passion. You wrote that for your brother, didn't you? <laughs> uh, but amongst his output were uh, more than 200 cantatas. Uh, and a cantata is a sort of a musical composition for voice and a sort of reduced orchestra. So you see, you... I could sing some of them. Yeah, you couldn't sing the Brandenburg Concerto. Says <laughs> you. You could sing a cantata, certainly. Hey, yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, he wrote s- several hundred of these, most of which were written for the church. So that he, he wrote a lot of them in sort of cycles for 
like Lent, and then it would be, you know, Easter, and he wrote them for Advent and Epiphany mm. and all sorts of stuff. Um, so uh, hundreds and hundreds of them written for his work in the churches across uh, Germany where he works. But he also wrote some very secular ones. So there's one called, I think it's called The Hunting Cantata, which he wrote for a friend of his for his birthday and all this sort of stuff. Mm. But sometime around 1732, Bach wrote a cantata based on how much he liked to drink coffee. Oh. <laughs> and this is the yes or yes. Is this fact. about you really, Paul? <laughs> Was I sat in Starbucks going, I'll do a fact about someone I like? This is exactly what you've done. Yeah. <laughs> so, continue. As I say, yeah, written sometime around about uh, 1732. And it's called Schweigtstiller Plaudert nicht. Mm. Which means be still, stop chattering. <laughs> That's what I shout to you. Then. That's what I say to my coffee-addled hands <laughs> when I'm trying to write this nonsense. I mean, uh, write about Bach. Mm. Uh, so that's kind of the title of the, the whole shebang. It's written in 10 movements and there are three characters. So it's sort of like a little mini comic opera it, rather than a sort of serious bit of classical music. Oh, so like characters like... The, oh, like actual characters, yeah. Like so. Harry Potter or something. Well, Harry Potter doesn't turn up in this. <laughs> but there are three characters. One of them is a narrator who sort of introduces the whole shebang. And then there's a sort of old kind of fatherly character called Schlendrian and his daughter, Lieschen. Hmm. They're the two sort of main characters. Yeah, and this uh, uh, whole cantata was written for a, a string orchestra plus a flauto traverso. Imagine if I disappeared when I said <laughs> You see, Harry Potter is in this. <laughs> um, which is just a sort of old kind of precursor to the modern flute. Mm. So that was a sort of one of the solo instruments. But the whole story of this thing in its sort of 10 movements is that the daughter is addicted to coffee. And Bach was a big coffee drinker. Mm. So he, his sort of thoughts are being given to, over to her. And the father isn't very keen on his daughter drinking a lot of coffee. Um, and so they have this sort of comic back and forth across 10 musical movements. The fact that it's 10. <laughs> so would you like to hear All not, ten of them? <laughs> not just the plot, but some of the lyrics? Oh, go on then. Okay, so it opens up with, as I say, with the narrator kind of introducing this whole setup. And the first section is, is uh, Schlendrian. It's kind of bemoaning his daughter's uh, coffee addiction, to which uh, Lieschen, his daughter, uh, enters and she starts to sort of defend her coffee drinking habits with the words, th this isn't in German, by the way, mm. Father, don't be so hard. If I can't drink my little cup of coffee three times a day, <laughs> I would become so upset that I'd be like a dried up piece of roasted goat. <laughs> Truly for the ages And then she has a, a, a beautiful solo number Called Wie schmeckt der Kaffee süß Which is uh, how sweet the coffee is <laughs> <laughs> It's got nothing to do with the fact that I'm currently learning how to speak German <laughs> As you can tell it's working really well mm. uh, Would you like some of the um, lyrics to this section? I'd like a cup of coffee to get through the rest <laughs> of this fax is what I'd like, but go on. Go on so then. the daughter is singing kind of her praises of coffee and she says, it's more delicious than a thousand kisses. <laughs> You've made this up. Milder than the finest wine. Coffee. I have to have coffee. <laughs> this is a musical you've written. <laughs> and if someone wants to pamper me, bring me coffee as a, <laughs> as a gift. <laughs> 
I suppose it sounds better in German. This is what I was singing to the uh, barista <laughs> at Starbucks. No, it wasn't. So after that, the father, old uh, Schlendrian, he comes back and says, no, you don't. I'm still not having any of this. Uh, so he kind of argues with her and says, you know, if you don't stop drinking your coffee, I'll stop buying you these lovely fine clothes that I'm buying you. But she says, no, I'll still drink my coffee. I don't care about my clothes. So he says, right, I'll lock you in your room and you won't be able to look out the window anymore. And she says, no, I don't mind about that. And then finally, there's the crux. Mm. He says, if you don't stop drinking coffee, you'll never find a husband. And this mm. changes the daughter's mind. Mm. She starts to think, oh, you know, maybe I am addicted to coffee. Maybe I, you know, I am a little bit too jittery these days. <laughs> maybe I need to rein this in a little bit. So he goes, finally, I've broken you down. And he goes off to uh, go and find her a husband. And then crux of the plot is that the daughter now sings a song saying that she is going to write into her marriage contract that her husband has to allow her to drink coffee whenever she wants. <laughs> and that's the little comic payoff right at the end. And then the narrator comes back out to sort of round everything up and he finishes it off. Do you want to hear his final words? Go on. Just as the cat does not leave the mouse alone. <laughs> Ladies <laughs> are addicted to coffee. <laughs> That's a terrible metaphor. <laughs> it's like it's so ham-fisted. This was written by one of written the, by Bach. This was written by one of the greatest composers ever. Me. I mean, uh, Bach. The mother loves it. The grandmother drinks it too. <laughs> so who can blame the daughters? And that's how it finishes. I thought so, gonna, it sounded like there's going to be something more. Oh, no, it's, it's a sort of slightly open-ended, uh, you know, rhetorical question leaves it open for the audience. So, uh, yes, in 1732, uh, <laughs> this was written by Bach. I'm going to tell you exactly how this went down this morning. You got to Starbucks, you started researching Aggressive Pig, got so caught up in Aggressive Pig, you had... <laughs> Oh, I've got to go over and record SBS. I've got no time for a third fact. What am I doing today? Oh, I've been learning German and I like Bach and I'm drinking coffee. I'm going to combine these three facts into some bollocks that I'm going to cobble together and make up completely. <laughs> Tell me if I'm way off on this. But... You to have to decide. <laughs> I think I might have just hit the nail on the head with this one. But let's pretend that this is true. <laughs> I know coffee houses were becoming popular in the 18th century. Yes. They were a nice place to meet, smoke, have coffee. Yes. Um, I can tell you that this premiered in a coffee house oh, in Leipzig. Did it really, Paul? <laughs> did it really? I think you've literally taken some German phrases that you were using today and you've put them into this fact. <laughs> is, is it that transparent? <laughs> I think it's that transparent. Well done, though. It was a nice story. <laughs> I mean, but it's just Bach wrote a he was a cantata. coffee drinker, but he wrote he wrote about a woman addicted to coffee. It's like, oh, if you don't stop drinking coffee, I'll block out all light to your bedroom. What sort of a threat's that? Well, see, that's why she wasn't bothered She only about drinks it. three cups a day, and he considers that an addiction. But I'd had three cups of coffee before I wrote this. <laughs> I need three to get out of this. <laughs> but no, I think I can't really interrogate this because I don't know much about Bach. So I'm just going to come down on, I think this is an absolute sham that you've thrown together in about 10 minutes before you came over here. 
Final answer. <laughs> Final answer. It is. That entire story was true. <laughs> <laughs> Bach wrote the coffee cantata in 1732. Wow. I didn't think I could lose any more respect for Bach. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, it even premiered, apparently, in a coffee house in Leipzig. Wow. Yeah, he was a big coffee drinker. And those wonderful lyrics. I mean, they're, they're so sparkling. I mean, they, they just jump off yeah, the page. They might sound better when they're sung in their original 18th century German. Or not sung at all and left to be forgotten. So <laughs> we never have to hear the coffee cantata again. <laughs> I should say, actually, this is quite a famous piece of music, but I just I decided to throw it in because I knew you wouldn't know anything about it. <laughs> <laughs> and I just pieced together what you've been doing this morning. Pretty much, oh. yeah. But no, completely true. As I'm sure people listening to this will know, yeah, the coffee cantata is a real piece of music. I am. I was bamboozled, Paul. Yeah. So it's a draw. It is a draw. Yeah. And on that note, I'm off to, I'm going to have to get a nice relaxing cup of coffee, get into my mud bath and read, read some aggressive piglet jokes. And I'll see you all next week, everybody. <laughs> <laughs>